This episode is brought to you by Arden Labs Education. Sign up today to learn advanced concepts in Go, Docker, Kubernetes, Terraform, and more. Visit ardenlabs.com forward slash education for more information. Welcome to the Arden Labs podcast. Our special guest today is Damien Grisky. Dude, I cannot believe that I'm seeing you again. I mean, I guess I could have seen you, but dude, it's so nice to, to see your smiling face. It has been ages. I think the last time I saw you possibly was in Amsterdam. You came for like a training. Dude, that was forever ago, man. That means you were still at Booking.com or something. I, yeah. So at least I've now been five years at Fastly. So that was probably the last time I saw you in person, unless we met up at a GopherCon. We got a lot to talk about here. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So for people who don't, though they should, necessarily know who you are, <laughs> Why don't you give everybody like a two-minute spiel on like what you're doing today? Two-minute spiel. Uh, so today, uh, I work for uh, Fastly. Uh, we're a CDN. Um, I am working on TinyGo support for our Computed Edge product, which is a WebAssembly-based uh, edge computing platform. Um, Prior to that, um, I was doing distributed systems at Fastly. And prior to that, I was doing distributed systems for Booking.com. Um, I've been using Go, I think I've been using Go for a little bit more than 10 years. And I think I've been being paid to use Go, um, for about eight years. Um, so I've been doing this a long time, uh, which, which is kind of entertaining because it means that I've, I've seen a lot of changes, um, and just makes it more exciting. And I'm still excited to, 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 to use Go and, and play with it and continue to use it for work and, and my personal things that I build. So. Well, I've never... I've never forgotten you working at Booking and that being a pearl shop and you finding ways to kind of get go in your life over there. Like that's always stuck with me, you know, because I didn't realize at the time I met you that you weren't doing go full time dev because of everything you were contributing back into the community it was mind blowing to me. Yeah, it was. Um, that was an interesting. That was an interesting period. Uh, I think it's. Um, you know, like, how do you introduce a new technology um, in, into a company, you know, like trying to find ways where uh, the existing technology really is not appropriate um, anymore um, and trying to convince people that the workarounds that they're using, like, have more downsides than simply introducing uh, a new technology like Go. Um, and, you know, sort of, you know, working against that, but trying to do so in such a way that kind of like doesn't immediately get you fired. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, shall we say political machinations that have to go on and using social capital and, and all that stuff. And, uh, and it was tricky. And I think the, I think the most success uh, that I had was, uh, you know, finding, finding a couple places where we had tried to use Perl and for the concurrency requirements or for the CPU requirements, um, you know, it was like, they, it was, it was not a success. Um, and saying, don't, don't go, don't go too far deep. Don't, don't, I'm going to interrupt you just a second, because I want to get to that story. I don't want to tell it all just yet. Cause that's kind of near, near the end. Uh, but I didn't know that you were working on tiny go and you said wasm you were working on WebAssembly. 
WebAssembly stuff, yeah. Yeah, the 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 tiny goes generating the WebAssembly. Are you using Rust for that? So the so the WebAssembly runtime uh, that Fastly uses is called Wasm Time, uh, and it actually it's part of the Bytecode Alliance, and we actually just hit 1.0 today. The announcement went out. Uh, again, all the details uh, for that and what I'm allowed to say, I will refer you to the various announcement blog posts. Um, but uh, Wasm Time is powering our uh, computed edge. Uh, platform, and in order to allow people to build uh, applications in Go uh, that run on Computed Edge, the solution is uh, Tiny Go, um, and so we're using that to build uh, the WebAssembly binaries, and then and then they get deployed. That's amazing! I can't wait to get. Now I want to get to the end so I can talk to you all about that stuff, Ron. That is super interesting. Does Ron Evans know you're working on any of that stuff? Uh, Ron Evans is very much aware. Uh, I think I've been <laughs> hanging out in the Tiny Go channel uh, for about the past year, uh, contributing, contributing, uh, you know, bug fixes and and patches and discussions and whatnot. So, uh, and I think it's 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 a nice little community uh, we have there. And um, you know, I mean, especially around Tiny Go, there are a lot of people that are really interested in like good Wasm and Wasi support. Uh, for Go, and I think the like the main Go compiler. Um, I think there's like an open bug report, but it's basically stalled. Um, they're waiting for somebody from the uh, you know community to step up and basically do that. And the main Go team has said we are not interested uh, in doing this. Um, and you know, and because Tiny Go basically gets that support from fr for free because it uses the LLVM uh, backend. A lot of people now are interested in using Tiny Go for the. Uh, for the, for the Wasm, or like basically for that Wasm support. Um, I wish there were slightly more people who were interested in like fixing Tiny Go's uh, Wasm support. <laughs> um, it's like so there are a lot of comments and a lot of bug reports saying like Tiny Go doesn't do this, and it's, and the answer is like yeah, yes, you're right, it doesn't. Could you please fix it and help us like and help us do that? Um, but uh, I think for the most part, there's only there's there, I think there are a small number of large bugs um, that are really preventing. I think wider deployment uh, of Tiny Go, and some of those are just because it's you basically it, because it is a reimplementation, um, and there are some parts of the standard library that we can use, and some parts uh, that we can't. And I think the big one for us at the moment is Reflect. Um, you know, the uh, so the Reflect package obviously is tied very closely into the, the extra meta information that the that the Go compiler puts into uh, the binaries about all the types and everything, and and Tiny Go just doesn't do that yet. And so the two things that we have to do is first we have to get the Tiny Go compiler putting in all that meta information, and then we have to write our own Reflect package that uses that meta information that has been put in. And uh, man, Reflect shows up in a lot of places you wouldn't expect, um, or rather the places you do expect. Everybody wants, you know, JSON support, XML support, um, you know, like testing support, and it's like, well, I, we're 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 got it, it. It doesn't work there yet. Sorry, uh, <laughs> but we're working on it. I would think that adding that to the binaries is it gonna is it a is that like a half a percent increase in binary size or is it significant? I don't know. I think there is a patch that is starting to do that. Um, that Ica has started on. It hasn't been finished, uh, and so. I don't know the actual binary size increase. Uh, you know, I'd have to look it up uh, in the benchmarks attached to that uh, PR. Um, but it, it is going to bloat it somewhat. Um, and I think it's one of those things that 
because it is like a fundamental part of the Go compiler, at some point we're just going to have to bite the bullet and 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 take that hit for binary size um, because everybody wants it. Um, you know, obviously, you know, with Tiny Go versus Go, uh, you know, we you know we have a much simplified uh, runtime. We have a much uh, you know smaller garbage collector. Uh, you know, we, we we there are a lot of things that we have you know stripped out of the main runtime uh, that give us binaries that are you know, way, way, way smaller um, than what the than, than what the upstream Go compiler produces. And, you know, for a lot of these, uh, you know, like embedded blockchain VMs and, uh, you know, edge computing uh, kinds of stories, like are really good because it means that you don't actually have this like massive binary um, that has all of your logic. You have a much smaller binary that has a, a higher percentage of your logic that you care about um, in there. And just all the, you know, processing uh, whatnot that goes along with those smaller binaries are then better. So, um, you know, it's, it's not even clear that if the upstream Go compiler all of a sudden added YZ support tomorrow, everybody would jump to it um, because there are still a lot of advantages uh, that TinyGo has, um, and not even on the embedded space, just, you know, for uh, you know, YZM and YZ in general. All right, we're going to get back to all of that because it's fascinating to me, and I have a ton of questions, and I didn't know that you had all, at least a good full year of experience here. So. I want to get some questions answered, but we're going to, we're going to get there. Oh, ask away. <laughs> but I, I, this podcast is really about you and, and the audience kind of getting a sense of, uh, you know, your journey through tech. So a, a couple things before we start, you didn't grow up in the States, right? Where did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up in Toronto. Um, and you know, I had a normal Canadian upbringing whatever that means uh you know i think i first installed linux uh in 1994 no 1995 may of 1995 um and i actually remember um being on the phone uh and a friend of mine uh was walked me through an install of slackware uh over the phone uh on my but computer. how how old are you in 95 uh, so in 95 in... i would have been uh may of 95 i think i would have just turned 16 that's right yeah because it was a because it was a because i had a four cd set um of uh of the infomagic cd-roms and they were dated december 1994 and that's what i installed of may of 95 so uh, yeah i guess i would have been 16. so you're in the equivalent in the u.s of high school at that point uh yeah yeah you're grade 10 i think yeah uh could be 10 yeah, yeah, yeah grade, 10, grade, 10. grade 10, grade 10 or 11, somewhere in there. Yeah, 10 grade 11. And why are you installing this at 16? What, uh, what popped up? That is a good question. Um, so <laughs> I, um, so I mean, so I mean, I started programming, I think, grade six. Um, so I would have been, you know, 11 or 12 uh, in that range. Um, you know, started doing basic stuff. Um, you know, really enjoyed uh, the programming aspect of it. Um, I think in grade not and then did you know sort of like basic and q basic but where where were you doing that programming at such an early age you had a computer at home uh i had a computer at home yeah i had uh, an intel 80 what is it 8086 i guess 8088 so some some ancient you know monochrome uh <laughs> you know like like amber and black uh screen with you know the uh, 640k ram and a 20 meg hard drive um and it was doing you know gw basic uh on that um and i and i just liked it you know going through the you know typing out programs from the you know osborne uh computer book series um 
and that was always entertaining. Uh, and uh, then I think my mom got a new laptop in 94, maybe. Um, and that had QBasic on it. And all of a sudden, wow, this was like so much faster. Um, it was amazing because I think that would have been a 486 uh, laptop, um, which is way faster than this uh, 8088 uh, laptop. Or sorry, uh, not laptop. <laughs> yeah, laptop. Um, tower, massive tower. Um, and uh, and that had QBasic on it, which uh, all of a sudden like opened up. Wow, like this is so much faster. Um, you know, than anything that I wanted to do. And I think that at that time, I'm trying to think if I started doing, uh, like I remember doing assembly programming uh, like on that laptop, um, but it probably wasn't in QBasic. I think it was probably, I must've gotten Turbo Pascal um, at some point. Uh, so I think even in grade nine, I, 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 I knew that I was, that I, that I really enjoyed programming. And I remember going to the math teacher because I wanted to, uh go into the uh like the grade 11 computer science uh class like my next year even though i was only in grade 10. um he's like well you know bring me something that you have written and so i brought him a program uh that was actually uh a site swap generator so site swaps are a uh, a mathematical juggling notation um for listing out and coming up with juggling tricks and in my youth i was a juggler as well and so this is one of the programs that i wrote um, and he was like, you know, you know, look, looked at this, you know, basically implementation of an algorithm. I find it amusing that even in then, that is basically something that I was doing. Um, and so, like, yes, you, yes, yes, you can go into the grade eleven uh, computer science course. Um, and I actually remember that uh, I walked out of my last exam in grade nine. I was like, wow, I'm going to be in the grade eleven computer science course. I know they're doing uh, Pascal, and everybody else will have done like the grade ten computer science stuff. So I better you know, figure out, so I, I, so I'm not really far behind. So I went out and I bought a copy of Turbo Pascal seven and over the summer, like I basically taught myself all of Turbo Pascal. And I remember showing up in, uh, uh, you know, sort of like first day of classes and realizing that I had taught myself effectively the entire course that we were going to do, um, that year. And well, I guess, I guess, I guess I kind of know this stuff then. Um, so that was, that, that was entertaining. <laughs> okay. I, I, I want to ask you, since you're doing so much programming at home what kind of when i was doing all that programming at home and it was really basic until i went to university i was and i'm bad at games but i was writing just a lot of like textual based sort of games that's that's what i was spending my time doing even though i hate gaming and i couldn't even win the games i was writing what what were you what, what type of programs were you writing throughout that junior high and say high school and I was doing I was doing some graphics. So I know I did uh, some assembly work, but that was mostly writing a graphics library. So I'd write like the uh, like the main logic in Turbo Pascal, and then like uh, drop down into assembly for like the actual pixel drawing um, stuff. So I did sort of like graphics programming. I wasn't using it to write games. I was just using it to sort of like write dumb little graphics programs because I was more interested in like the algorithms and the assembly work and sort of learning that. Um, I was uh, probably unsurprisingly writing programs to like solve quadratic equations, um, you know, and uh, writing simulators for things. Um, I I I loved and 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 worked through probably all of the example programs in a series of books by uh, A.K. Dudney. Um, so again, going I, I mean I could just talk for ages and ages and ages. So. 
so uh, once upon once upon a time uh, in Scientific American, um, uh, there was a series of articles called Mathematical Recreations. Um, and after Mathematical Recreations, there came Computer Recreations. And this series of articles in Siam were called Computer Recreations. They were a bunch of articles, and they were all written by A.K. Dudney. And those were then collected and published uh, in, I think, three, uh, three books. One was called The Magic Machine. One was called The Armchair Universe. And the third one was called The Tinker Toy Computer. Um, and oh, and there was a, um, a fourth one that was called the Turing Omnibus. Um, and so these are all basically like, here's a neat thing about computer science, and here's an article about it, and then here's like a program that kind of like uses like this idea that we were just kind of talking about. Um, and so I was doing those. And so I mean, that was, yeah, implementations of algorithms in math and computer science. Um, again, going like, <laughs> going back a long time. So, so what's interesting to me is, None of that material ends up in my household. So how do you even know this material exists? How is it getting in front of you? Where are you finding it? Who's sharing it with you at this time? The public library. Um, so I, uh, you know, very quickly exhausted the, uh, the public library resource, like in the children's section. And then I went to like the adult section um, and uh, discovered the magic of, uh, you know, reading bibliographies and uh, asking librarian and uh, getting books on hold sent from other libraries. Um, and uh, I was also fortunate enough to uh, be able to get a library card for the University of Toronto Library, um, even though I was not yet a student there. Um, and so I was unable to go and browse the you know, university computer library section um, and, and take out books uh, when I was in high school. So this is a lot of self-interest. This is self-discovery. This is, this, is this is entirely, entirely self-interest. Um, and, and I have to give a shout out also uh, to my high school math teacher, Ms. Sellers, um, who entertained all of my, all of my questions and, and answered so many of them, uh, you know, like after class, you know, like questions about math, questions about computer science, because I think she actually had a, a CS degree as well. Um, and so just being able to answer my questions and, and point me in places uh, of other things to look up. Um, and I was just devouring everything I could get my hands on uh, and and then and then writing little programs um, to to explore those things. Like I remember, like I learned complex numbers because I wanted because I read an article from A.K. Dudney about how to write a Mandelbrot generator. And I'm like, wow, what's this weird thing with complex numbers and trying to look it up and, you know, and, and obviously there was, you know, a little bit in the book about that, but then, you know, going to my, uh, going to Ms. Sellers and she said, oh, complex numbers. Yeah, you'll, you'll get to that in, you know, like a couple of years and, you know, very quickly sketching out what complex numbers were. And I say like, thank you very much. And then I'd go back to the library and, you know, pull out a, you know, high school textbook and find, okay, where, where can I learn about complex numbers so that I can, you know, understand what this Mandelbrot generator thing is actually doing. All right. I got, I got a, so many questions here, but, 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 but the first one is, did you, at, you know, you don't have a fully mature brain yet at this time. Did you, did you struggle with the math or did light bulbs just happen to pop all the time for you? Uh, I, th I think this light bulbs went out, went up, went out, went out, went, went on. There you go. That's the preposition I'm looking for. Um, you know, uh, I think I just, 
I just understood it. I think I just gobbled up a lot of that stuff. You know, like, am, am I one of the, uh, you know, like, uh, burnt out, formerly gifted kids? Yeah, maybe. Um, you know, like, is anybody really, is, any, anybody, is anybody truly really formerly gifted? Um, you know, but, uh, you know, I think it was something that I, that, that I loved and I just dove into and, and I really, I mean, obviously there were things, there, there, I mean, there were things that I didn't understand because I didn't, because I didn't have the math, right? Um, or I or I didn't have enough of a theoretical background. So um, so I know that when I was in high school, um, one of the books that I got from the university library was a copy of the Red Dragon book, right? So the the compiler's book. And I remember, you know, reading, you know, like trying to like trying to read it. And I could basically read, you know, like chapter one, um, because where they sort of go through like a uh, like a miniature stack machine, and you sort of build a tree for an expression parser, and then you spit out opcodes um, just in a and in a very straight directed walk to the graph and you sort of evaluate it. And, and I, and I could understand that, um, you know, but then they get into the later chapters and all of a sudden, you know, you're talking about stuff with like regular expression trees and the, and, and the regex to FSM, uh, you know, uh, how is it duality, whatever, um, you know, and, and the CFGs and all the more theoretical stuff. And I'm like, I, like, I do not understand this, but I do understand chapter one. Uh, and then I remember like, you know, like first year university, you know, I had done a little bit more of that stuff and I, and, and I actually bought a copy of the red dragon book and I'm like, okay, I read chapter one. Hey, now I can understand like chapter two, this is amazing. Right. And, you know, third year university, all of a sudden it's like, oh, great. Now I've done all the, you know, like introduction to you know, the theory of computation. Now I understand more about finite state machines and, and that work. And I understand more about CFGs and first time automata and I understand all that stuff. And, and, how, and now I can start to struggle with like how, how all these optimization passes are going to work. And then fourth year, I actually had a compiler's course. And so I wrote a compiler. Um, but I, you know, so, I mean, there were some things that were, that were like that. I would, I would see them and maybe, you know, understand enough to get what I'm, uh, what I'm trying to do at the moment, but have in the back of my brain, okay, this, this area exists. And if I need it again, then, then I can go look it up again and I'll have a little bit more to, you know, like to sort of get my foot in the door and, and squeeze out a little bit more information, um, from what it was that I wanted. But you're describing my life on any white paper. I can read the introduction and maybe the next section and I can understand the semantics. And then they start throwing math at me. And my brain just it, very quickly, it just all it's like, you know what, this is implementation detail, I'm done. I'll do it myself. <laughs> I, yeah, and, and, I, and I think for me, like math, like I always loved math. Um, like I, I, I always loved math. Um, and so I think, you know, for whatever reason that clicked for me and, and it translated, uh, you know, into the computer, as in, into the computer science area. And obviously I went to my university background is all. But wait, 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 don't, don't go, don't go to university yet because what is fascinating to me is I don't know what your teachers did with you. You were ahead of every class when it was time to be in that class. You had to be way ahead of your math. By the time you, did you, like, I imagine maybe you took some calculus in high school. Like, explain that situation. You, you must have had these teachers on the, on the ropes. Um, so I did do calculus in high school, but that was because I was in Ontario at a time when we had OAC, which was effectively grade 13. And so calculus was one of those classes that I was able to take. Um, but yes, I had already seen calculus because I was doing, because I was looking at other things previously. Um, what did my math teachers do with me? Uh, they humored me. They answered my questions. Um, you know, they, they gave me my A's. Uh, you know, I mean, I remember... I, again, this is one of those stories, right? Like I remember, uh, you know, Miss Seller sort of, you know, walking up the aisles, checking everybody's homework, and she sort of got to me, and it's like, have you done your homework? And like, my note paper is blank, and she's like, uh, okay, man, you know, checking, you give me the check anyway, because she knows that I know whatever it was, you know, we were doing. Um, and 
you know, it's, it's one of those, like, I was, like, I was a good kid, right? Like, I didn't, you know, get in the way with my intelligence. I just, you know, asked interesting questions that were possibly not entirely related, but not entirely unrelated. And, uh, you know, I just, it's like, I did, I did the coursework that they asked of me and I just did like so much more on my own, um, to keep my brain interested and, uh, and occupied. Um, and, and I, th and I think that, that they knew that this was the case because again, I would do whatever thing we were going up and then I would go up and ask after class and I would ask them, okay, but you know, like, like, like three steps down the road, I'm thinking of this thing and how does, and how does that actually work? Or, you know, what, what does that look like? So I want to, I want to ask you about your parents real quick, because did, what did they do? Did they like, are, like, just talk about your parents a little bit. I don't know what question to ask, but but yeah. Uh, so um, my my mom uh, was a children's librarian uh, for I don't know for years and years and years, um, uh, and then she became a hospital clown, uh, basically working again with the kids that uh, she had seen uh, as a librarian working in the hospital. Um, and, uh, then, and now she makes jewelry <laughs> and like basically wire work, uh, stuff. Uh, and it's amazing. Uh, and I will try to send you her Instagram so that you can link it in the show notes. However, that works. <laughs> um, and my dad was a lawyer, uh, or yeah, I guess was a lawyer retired now. Um, and, uh, you know, just lots of logical arguments of the dinner table, <laughs> Um, and, and what, and, and it's like, and I mean, you know, they, I think they, I think, I don't think there was anything specific that they did, uh, you know, with, with the math, uh, sort of things. I mean, they kept me, uh, very occupied with, you know, like various Saturday morning clubs at, at the Royal Ontario Museum. So I would learn stuff. I did, you know, circus school and I did juggling, um, you know, and I, I did a lot of that stuff and then sort of, you know, at some point I'm like, okay, but I have to get into university. And it turns out that like, you know, be, being a juggler is not actually a good term, like, uh, like career option, a good long-term career option. But did you enjoy the juggling? I get a sense that I loved the it juggling. was the, oh, it was the I, opposite. I absolutely love juggling. I mean, it's technical. I used to, I can juggle three balls. I've never gotten beyond three ever in my life. Um, it's technical, right? Like talk about the juggling. Cause you even turned it into math. Yeah. I, I love juggling. Uh, it was it was so much fun. I one of the <laughs> one one of the downsides I think for me of going to university is I got so caught up in university that I I stopped uh, I stopped juggling, um, and that was really sad for me. Um, and uh, I think in Montreal I did I did a little bit of juggling um, there after after I graduated, um, and then kind of when I was in Amsterdam. It's like all of a sudden now I have kids uh, and I can't really get away for, you know, like a couple hours, you know, on the weekend to go to some spot and, and do juggling. Um, and so that is that is a part of my life that I wish that I, that I wish I had back. Um, I don't know that, that I wish I kept up. And I'm I'm sure I need to find a way to to get more of that into my life. Um, but, yeah, I loved I, I, I absolutely love juggling. I, I love the juggling. At the height of your juggling abilities, what were you capable of doing? Um, so I tended to not really go for numbers juggling. So um, I, 
so in terms of numbers, it's like I could do four. I was working on five. Um, but what I really liked was the huge variety of tricks that you could do with three. Um, and so that is what I spent a lot of time uh, working on. Um, and even, you know, from a performance standpoint, because I, I, I did perform, I did, you know, corporate events and whatnot um, and busking on the street. Uh, but there, there comes a point when it's like the audience doesn't really know. So learning to juggle three is, uh, let's say it's like a three out of 10 and learning to juggle, you know, four is maybe like an eight out of 10 and learning to juggle five is like a 26 out of 10. Like it is, it is, it is way, way harder, um, to learn to juggle five than to, than that step from three to four. Um, but, but the audience doesn't care, right? It's like, look at this trick that I have spent you know, like two years working on and they're like, yeah, okay. I guess it's juggling five. I've seen other people doing five, right? Like it doesn't have the same uh, kind of oomph um, for it. And so at that point, so when you're, when you're getting to numbers, you're really just doing it for yourself. Um, and so I was working on five because it was an interesting project. But um, for me, I, I really liked uh, all the tricks and sort of the, you know, fluid motion and interesting things that you could do with three as kind of the uh, like creativity uh, through constraints, right? My constraint is that I only have three balls, you know, but, but so, so what, there's a lot you can do, uh, when only juggling three. Man, I never thought about it that way because I got pretty good with three where I could grab a ball in the air. I could never go behind my back. My shoulders didn't really work very well. I could spin in the air. I could slow it down, speed it up, but I always felt like it wasn't enough. Like if I didn't get to four or five, I just really couldn't consider myself a juggler. You're making it making me rethink the entire the entire thing well and you know one of the things like i held i hung out with the toronto jugglers right and we we would meet every tuesday and so you're around a whole bunch of jugglers and there are some people who who are jugglers like that is their job and there are some people who work in an office all day and come and you know just juggle and so you're and so you sort of learn about all the different areas uh, of juggling and other people's approaches to juggling, right? I wasn't just in my bedroom, you know, working on it because I picked up a book. It was it was really part of the juggling community uh, uh, that I was at there. Actually, if you want to know how I got into this, how long into the computer stuff, it's because of people who were at the Toronto Jugglers Club. Um, uh, I think yeah, probably tell the story, dude. Them. Tell the story. No, I well, I mean, it would have been it would have been you know, I like programming, and they're like, well, you should try out this Linux thing. Um, you know, and sort of, well, I'm interested in this. Well, you know, here, here's a book. So, I mean, it's a combination of me getting books from the library and talking to them and, uh, and getting stuff back. So. All right. Let's, let's, let's get you ready to go to university. What are you thinking about university wise? Was there a specific school and study or you were unsure? So obviously, you know, being, being smart in math, uh, and physics, uh, which really is just math. Um, at least at the high school level, uh, you know, everybody was saying, oh, like, you're going to go and be an engineer. You know, that was kind of like the default uh, occupation uh, that I was being given. And uh, I think the people that I knew that were in university at the time were also uh, were also engineers. Um, and I remember talking with uh, somebody from the Toronto Jugglers Club. And actually, this is Gregor McNish. And uh, he... Uh, I mean, he, he was the person, I think, that helped me over the phone install Linux oh, those so many years ago. Um, and he was like, well, you know, like, look at, it's like, I know everybody's telling you to be an engineer, but look at the people who are doing what you want to do and see what their degrees are in. Uh, and 
Uh, and I remember it must have been, I think it must have been, I think probably Brian Kernan, who I, I looked at his stuff and he's like, oh, he has like a computer science degree. Um, and if I love math so much, maybe I should do something that is like more like on the math and computer science stuff. Cause I'm reading all this AK Dudney stuff and he's like a math computer science prof, you know, prof, like it's not, uh, it's, it's not the engineering side of things. It's the more theoretical, uh, side of things. So I'm going to go and do that. And so even though I sort of, everybody was telling me, oh, yeah, you are going to be an engineer. Um, I ended up applying to a bunch of computer science, uh, programs and, and got into a bunch of them and ended up going to Waterloo, uh, for my, for my degree. So let me, let me, let me ask you this question. So at the time, at least going into computer science, wasn't going to be an engineering degree, like, because it wasn't traditionally mechanical or double E or ceramic. Is that kind of what the, uh, well, so, so, uh, at Waterloo, the computer science department is, or was, um, part of the math faculty. Um, and like the engine and the computer engineering was like part of the engineering faculty. Like that was a different set of things with a different set of topics and a different focus. Um, and you're going to end uh, up with a probably, math degree. Yes. And so actually my, 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 the piece of paper that I have in my parents' basement, uh, somewhere, um, actually says like bachelor's of mathematics, like honors computer science. Um, I think Waterloo probably now has like actually a like computer science TM degree. Um, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, again, my, uh, my, my undergrad was, uh, part of the math faculty and, and I'm sure that that affected like how I view programming. Um, you know, again, with, with everything that I was reading is like, oh, like this is all just math, but it's like math on a computer. Um, and then, you know, sort of getting into the heavy math stuff and, you know, encouraging me that like, you know, I, I can read these academic computer science papers and research papers. And then, you know, when I'm, you know, off in the workforce, you know, reading papers, it's like, oh yes, like I know how to do this because I did this kind of thing back when I was at university. Well, I want to, I want to interrupt you for a second. Was college as easy as high school was, was there something there that like challenged you and you were just like, I can't <laughs> oh, do this? Oh, yes. Uh, ab absolutely. Um, I mean, this is this I think is what happens to you know. I'm going to say the traditionally gifted kids. You know, like they breeze through high school and then bam, they hit a wall uh, in university, and that 100% happened to me. Um, all of us. I mean, you know, there were some courses that were easy and some courses that were hard. Um, you know, but uh, it's it's one of those things where um, you know you have like sort of like all the smart math and computer science kids from all over Canada show up at Waterloo. And the triangle, you know, that used to be like the top 1% is like now your entire class. Um, and it's like, you're in there, you might be at the bottom there, you know, but you're still there. And so it's really, it's really easy to say, oh, like, yeah, those people are in like the smart math classes and I'm just in like the dumb math class, um, you know, and then sort of like totally skewing off your entire perception of how smart you are, you actually are to like have, have gotten there uh, in the first place. Um, but it was hard. It was, it was, it was hard. I had to work, you know, yeah, probably for like the first time in my life, I had to work at an academic subject. Um, and, and it was tricky. And I know that I had some, uh, some fellow students, uh, who did not take hitting that wall well and, uh, dropped out of the computer science program because, you know, all of a sudden they couldn't take the hit to the ego that is effectively being shown that you're not smart and everything will not come super easily to you. 
Do you remember, do you remember the moment where you had that wake up call? Was it like after your first day of classes? Was it a weekend? Was it that first bad grade? Like, do you kind of remember having that moment when you're like, oh my God, this isn't, uh, this is real. I mean, I mean, there were definitely things, uh, you know, in first year. I mean, I think my, I think the first computer science course I took um, was still really easy because it was, you know, just introduction to kind of programming and stuff. Um, it may have been one of the, is probably, it's probably one of the Calc 2. So that would have been like starting to deal with like all the integration stuff. Um, all of a sudden like, okay, now I like, I, I have to like cram all this stuff into my brain. Um, or maybe one of the physics courses uh, that I took where all of a sudden it wasn't just, you know, like regurgitating formulas. It was having to do a little bit more thinking. And I remember, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, those would have been courses first year, I guess Calc would have been, uh, so I guess Calc 2 would have been second term and probably the physics course would have also been like second term. So it's like this, the second half of my first year um, at university um, that it was really a shock. I was like, oh, I really have to work. It's, you know, it's not just enough to, you know, write out the answers. Um, because they come easily, but I, I imagine that some people would get excited about. That. I, I would almost imagine that you would be a little excited about that. Like, finally, I have something that is challenging me. Uh, I mean, I mean, yeah, I, I loved it. Um, it was it was hard, but I loved it. Uh, you know, it's I, and and to to the extent that like like I graduated, I considered uh, going off and and doing uh, you know grad work. Um, and and even now it's like man I miss university but it's probably I'm just like looking back through rose tinted glasses because um, it was it was, I mean it was hard but I loved it right and I certainly left university thinking like I loved it that was amazing. So I I'm guessing that you graduated university around 2002. Uh, 2003. So 2003. The, okay. Yeah. So the Waterloo Computer Science Department, um, their so they actually have a co-op program. Um, so I so it's a five-year degree or rather. Let me rephrase that. It's a four-year degree. It takes five years, but you're alternating school, like sort of like on-campus work with uh, basically like internships, like paid internships at sort of, uh, you know, various companies. And so at the end of the five years, you have a four-year degree and two years of work experience. Wow. On your um, resume. On, yeah, on your resume. Um, and so like I did a ton of stuff. I worked um, at uh, Certicom, which was the crypto company that was bought by BlackBerry um, and, you know, that did all like their ECC uh, elliptic, elliptic curve cryptography patents. Um, I did some stuff there. Uh, I worked uh, at the Bank of Montreal in their like fraud department, right? I, you know, it's, you know, I was a sysadmin, uh, you know, at a couple of small startups. And so you just have this huge range um, of experiences and you say, well, what is it that I like doing? What size company um, do I like working and if, uh, working on? And of course you're getting paid. Um, and so you sort of, you know, you end your four month stint and you end up back at university and you're like, hey, I've just paid for my next four months of university. Um, Which of those internships did you enjoy the most? Was it the, the heavier crypto algorithms, elliptical curve stuff? I, I find the fraud stuff interesting just because you can't imagine what people will do. <laughs> I, I did a little fraud detection. Yeah, I, so I think the one that I enjoyed the most was probably my time at Certicom. Uh, and I think there were a couple of reasons. Like I did, it wasn't like, it wasn't a tiny company and it wasn't a huge company. It was kind of like a middle company, a middle sized company. Um, and uh, and I did, I did a couple of like really interesting uh, projects for them. I remember, I think I moved them from, 
try to think. This must have been a move from RCS to CVS. Um, so I did all the scripting and automation stuff for that and cleaned up the, all their make files to not be so horrendously ugly. Um, and uh, I think one of my favorite projects that I did, for one of the things that you have to do for your co-op uh, program is you have to write a work report, sort of, uh, you know, basically like a little engineering document. It's kind of like what I did in my summer vacation, but, you know, like sort of going through like a specific project that you worked on and, you know, sort of like writing like a work report, like you would actually if you were in an office writing a report on something you did. Um, and one of the things that I did for Certicom was I, so, again, this, this is going back many, many years now. Uh, so they, So they had a crypto library that ran on embedded devices. And one of the things that you could do with the IDE that they were using, which was MetroWorks Code Warrior, is if you had a Palm Pilot, remember those, uh, plugged into your computer, then you could tell MetroWorks Code Warrior to like upload the current binary that you're working on um, and run it and then, and then bring out the results, right? So you could not run it in a simulator, but run like your code on, the, on an actual device. Um, and I hooked up like, like a serial monitor and reverse engineered this protocol that MetroWorks Code Warrior was using to talk to the Palm Pilot so that we could take nightly build binaries and upload them to devices and run them overnight and get the results back in the morning. Um, and so I wrote a report on that. And that was so much fun, like reverse engineering this, this binary protocol going across the wire, you know, printouts of hex dumps going, okay, so this I think is my length field. And so it's going to be this. And so this is, you know, this is probably like, here's the file and here's the, here's the name, you know, and, and doing all that. Um, and that was so much fun. Do you remember the first time you got it working, even happy path? You must've been just dancing. <laughs> I did not specifically, but yes, I'm sure I was, uh, you know, this would have been, uh, 2000, I think I was doing this, maybe, maybe some 2001, I think. So did, so when you graduate in 2003, are you, I mean, I'm, are you thinking now I want to get into industry and maybe go back and work at that company? Are you thinking postgraduate, like graduate work? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I had, I had vague ideas of maybe I'll do some grad work, um, in like crypto or security or something. Um, but my grades were good enough. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, it was one of those like, ah, oh, this might be fun. Uh, my, uh, so I don't know if you ever saw the, uh, the, the handbook of applied cryptography. It was like a big green reference manual for crypto stuff. Um, anyways, uh, at university, I had two of the three co-authors, um, as professors, um, for, for my various courses. Um, and I was like, man, maybe I should uh, like go to Ottawa and do grad work uh, with Van Orshad, who would have been the third one. Um, and then I can get his signature on my copy as well. Um, but uh, no, I mean, so, I mean, I was like, well, no, I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll find a job. Um, and uh, actually ended up uh, working at a startup in Montreal. Um, and I think that was, that was, that was an entertaining uh, thing. So this, it was a, uh, uh, so it was a startup, um, basically entirely populated with uh, Waterloo grads, um, and we kept getting in these co-op students as well. And so our entire release schedule was basically like we were still thinking in these like Waterloo terms because you would get a student in, you'd have you know three months or I guess four months of their time um, to like get them to do development, and then you'd have a release you know but when they went back to school. Um, 
But what was what was the problem? What was the problem this startup was trying to solve? Uh, so this was so the the product was sorry. I guess so the company name was Nitty um, Net Integration Technologies Inc. Um, and they were basically a an autonomous Linux server for small businesses. So it's like uh, you know I want to have a mail server and a print server and a file server with backups, but I don't actually you know but I my I have like five employees, so I don't want to have a sysadmin on call. Um, and so you had this little expert system that would sort of run on this uh, basically embedded Linux machine that ran a couple little web drop downy things um, and then would sort of detect stuff. Um, and, and that was cool. I think Nitty was eventually bought by uh, IBM. It's almost like they wanted the cloud, but it wasn't there yet. So just give me an appliance for these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's entirely what. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, um, the, so a bunch of the people that, uh, used to work at Nitty, um, are now Tailscale founders. So, so there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, so I, I know a bunch of those people, uh, and yeah. And so, so I worked for them, uh, for a little bit. And then I think, so Nitty had this weird split where like all the engineering was in Montreal and all like sales and tech support and, uh, sort of bureaucracy administration was in Toronto. Um, and they wanted to shut down the Montreal engineering office, um, and offered to move us all back to Markham, which is like a small suburb of Toronto. Uh, I think most of us said no, because why would I want to move from like this awesome city, which is Montreal to this small suburb of Toronto? Um, and so, uh, you know, got another job in, uh, in, in Montreal doing not particularly interesting work. Check my LinkedIn if you really care about it. Um, but then I got a, uh, an email from a friend of mine, or rather a friend of my brother's who, when I was like an annoying teenager told him, Hey, you should check out this Linux thing. Um, and, uh, he said, Hey, Damien, do you want to move to Amsterdam? And I said, I said, well, sure. Why not? Because I think the if I was watching the movie of my life, I would want to watch the version in which the hero said, like, sure, yeah, I'll go do that, because that sounds like an adventure, um, rather than watching the version where she said, no, I think I'll stay home. Um, that sounds like too much of an adventure. Um, and so flew to Amsterdam. What year was that, like 2005? So that would, no, so that would have been 2009 I flew in September, because the cover story was I was taking my wife to Amsterdam as an anniversary present. Um, because you have to cover for these things when you're flying around for job interviews and you have a job. Uh, but that's what you're telling the uh, border, border patrol. Yeah. The border patrol. I'm talking about my coworkers, right? Like, hey, why are you flying to Amsterdam for like a day, right? Um, uh, and and, 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 and now, now to be fair, I, I did the same screw up when I interviewed it fastly. Um, you know, like I flew, you know, from Amsterdam, you know, to, to, to San Francisco and, you know, took a picture of my breakfast, uh, I mean, a coffee and a bagel, whatever, like a croissant, and, uh, you know, got a, got a DM from one of my coworkers saying like, your, your tweet is geotagged California. And I'm like, oh man. Oh, um, shit. <laughs> so it's like, but I mean, to be fair, it's like there are only a couple of reasons that someone in my position is likely to fly to California for like 48 hours, you know? Um, but so that was, uh, yeah. Anyway, so yeah. So flew, flew to Amsterdam, got hired, was there for a bit. <laughs> the Amsterdam, was the Amsterdam, the first job you took in Amsterdam, was that booking? 
That was booking. That that's I was I was in Amsterdam for booking. My visa was tied to me being employed at booking. Um, but what were you doing for them? Because I I have a vague memory that it wasn't as technical as algorithm work for some reason. So what what did they originally hire you? How long were you at booking? You were there for like. I was booking for seven years, um, and which and given the growth that booking was going through, we went from. Uh, I think about, was, I think the IT department was, I think, 65 people, about half of which were devs when I started, um, and about 1,200 people worldwide. And when I left, uh, the engineering department was 1,500 people, about half of which were devs, and 15,000 people worldwide. Um, and so that was like a crazy amount of growth uh, while I was there. Not only for the company, but obviously the uh, like the, not not only for like the business, like the business, but also like the business, like in terms of Euroscience um, that we were doing. What did you get hired for? I was working on infrastructure, right? Um, basically, writing Perl infrastructure uh, for their for their stuff. That sounded good to you at the time. What was exciting about switching to infrastructure and writing Perl? When I started running Linux, um, I started doing a little playing around with writing little scripts in Perl. Um, but I'm like, I don't really like this language, but it's a language, whatever. Um, and throughout my co-op positions, um, like I did some of the sysadmin ones, and those ended up being like writing stuff in Perl. And I'm like, well, okay, fine. I guess I know Perl, but this is not my favorite language. Um, and after I graduated, I went to MIDI, and again, I was basically hired, you know, to work on on this autonomic system, right? So it's, you know, it's uh, basically you know C plus uh, plus kind of stuff, and you know like Linux shell scripting, and you know for for all that, and uh, and sort of kernel internals. Um, and like within a couple months that we were there, uh, there was basically a hackathon to figure out a new way to write uh, testing frameworks so that we could test nightly builds like on real actual hardware. And uh, the team that I was on, I don't know if we, I don't remember if we won or if another team won, but at the end of that, um, I was then put on taking this hackathon thing and rewriting it and getting it into like productions that we had a thing. And that was in Perl. And I'm like, well, that kind of sucks. I guess this isn't my favorite programming language, but I will do this because it is an interesting problem. Um, and uh, then the company that I was at after I was at Nitty, um, again, that was a Perl shop. And uh, then we are, ended up doing a rewrite of the billing system, and that was in Java. And I'm like, yay, I get to do Java because I'm not doing Perl anymore. Uh, and when I got the email uh, from uh, my brother's friend in, uh, uh, in Amsterdam, he's like, by the way, it's in Perl. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Um, it, it was the language I could not get away from. Uh, but I took it because it was an adventure in Amsterdam, right? They were gonna, like, I was gonna go to Amsterdam and work at this company. That, that is why, uh, that is why I did it. Because, hey, it's an adventure, right? I didn't, I don't feel like the job was technical enough for you. So is this where kind of you find Go? I wanna, I wanna know about when Go hits your radar screen because you were doing a lot of algorithmic stuff, producing a lot of algorithmic stuff in Go. Like, like stuff beyond my brain. And now I'm wondering if that's how you were kind of keeping your yourself, I don't know, sharp, occupied, or interested. At scale, even dumb problems are hard. Um, and booking absolutely 
had that problem, as it were. Um, you know, there was so much traffic, there was so much data, there was so much of everything that even 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 the dumb problems were really hard to solve. Um, and so a lot of that work of like, well, how do we solve this was, you know, like either things that that I was being tasked to solve or things that uh, uh, like other teams that I was sort of, you know, chatting with uh, were tasked to solve. And so a lot of that was me diving into the research. Well, how do we solve this? You know, what is the research out there for streaming quantile support? You know, you know, just like all of these all these kinds of things. And uh, and so I think I ended up finding and so a, a lot of that work came from me just you know a, a combination of what are interesting problems that uh that booking has and what is the what is the research around them and then can i understand them enough to implement them so that i can answer questions about them when i then go back and talk to the teams and say here like i found a thing that solves your problem um and uh for me i mean i just uh you know like i mean so yeah go is around this time i think 2013 uh i think uh was my first uh g plus note um about uh playing with go um and uh, uh yeah it was it was one of those like so i you know a, a lot of my work sort of in university and part of that like i was writing everything in c um and at one point, I think after I graduated, I was like, uh, you know, I, I was never really happy with the compiler that I wrote in during fourth year. And so I'm like, I'm going to uh, write a, I, I'm going to write another compiler um, just so I like really sort of understand. And then it's not kind of like this, you know, dumb hacky thing put together for, for this coursework. Um, and I remember I started, uh, you know, I, I, have to, I, have to, I have to write my, my lecture and I have to write my symbol table. And so I need like another a hash table and so I need another linked list and I was like you've got to be kidding me like I do I, I've done this so many times I'm not doing this anymore um and so that's when I picked up Python and I'm like this is fantastic um and so I basically learned Python writing a Pascal compiler in it and so for a long time my joke was well I've only written one program in Python and it's a Pascal compiler um and uh and so I always had this issue it's like well you know, I want to write this, I want to write, I have an idea for an algorithm, I have an idea for a thing I want to write, um, and having to basically mentally decide, well, am I going to sort of prototype this in Python, or I'm going to do it in C, like, which one of these am I going to choose for this project that I want to write? Um, and I remember discovering Go, and I'm like, well, that solves that problem, right? Like, I have all of the niceties of Python with everything that I want, um, you know, from C, and it just fit exactly where it was I wanted to be writing code. Um, and I was like, that's it, I'm done. I've now found the language that fits exactly with, that, that, that is exactly what I want. So I kept, so I, I kept doing Go because it was exactly the level of abstraction that I was happy with. And I could go both up and down um, that, the, the tower of abstractions. Wow, okay. So I, I like the idea that, Bill, eventually at scale, even mundane problems become interesting. And you're, you're solving you, you're, it's one of the few times that I'd feel comfortable saying that you're dealing with Google-level problems, right? I say, you're not Google. You don't have, right? You don't have to worry about these problems, but you having to, you have to worry about these problems now. Um, talk about as you're learning more Go for the things that you want to work on, and you're seeing the problems that are happening at booking. 
how you begin to try to say, hey, you know what, Go is a better fit for this than what we're doing in Perl. Like, talk a little bit about, maybe the first time, if you can, like, you have this idea that, you know, if we did this in Go, it's going to be much better. And not because I want to promote Go, I want to kind of think about the engineering track you took there. I will say it was not easy. Um, I will say... And, and probably for a number of reasons, one of one of which is probably, I think, just the engineering culture uh, at, at Booking. It had a it had a very specific culture um, that I think made it difficult to introduce uh, new technologies. Um, but some of it was probably my approach. I probably was not the most politic of at the time. Um, I would probably do a better job now. Yeah, I think it was just like a GOIP lookup um, service uh, that was so basically, you know, integrating with. Uh, MaxMind and all of our other, uh, you know, internal logic around of stuff, and uh, basically, uh, the guy that was actually writing it was sat next to me, um, and I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to write this in Go, um, and so basically have like a parallel implementation, um, for you know, for, you know, for when slash if uh, his falls over. Um, and that was nothing to say, I mean, you know, and he, he was a fantastic developer. So it was not saying like, haha, I'm going to do this because I'm better than you. I'm like, but like, how hard is this? You know, what does the code actually look like for a production service, um, you know, that we would want to deploy, uh, at, at, at booking? What does the code complexity looks like? What does the, you know, request timings, um, look like? What infrastructure do I have to write to make it easy to, uh, deploy something in Go at booking? Um, and some of that was, well, you know, we want to connect to our databases. Well, we have a custom config file format. Well, I have to write something that can parse our custom config file format, right? Um, we have, you know, standard health checks. Okay, so what is a standard health, what is the implementation of a standard health check package look like? You know, how can I make what I'm doing in Go be a, <laughs> look as friendly <laughs> to these devs that are custom so that are custom not only to Perl code, but to booking Perl code and all of the conventions and niceties that they have. And I have to start building some of those uh, you know, in, in Go. And so a lot of my a lot of the initial time was, you know, I'd have a hackathon or I'd have you know some free time or I'd have you know some time at home. And just like starting to build up this these set of packages so that we could so that, so that when the time came, you know, I didn't have to say, you know, let's use Go. Okay, and now I have to spend, you know, like three months building out all this infrastructure. I would say, okay, let's use Go. And look, I have spent three months of my own time already building out all this infrastructure. I didn't even think about that. I never thought about all of the little packages for logging even metric, like just so that service fits, plugs in as if it was written in Perl. Like, yeah, of course. I don't know why I didn't think about that, but I can imagine the amount of tooling and libraries they had that everybody just relied on. You have to rebuild all that. I mean, it's a big system. I did have to rebuild all of it. And and to be fair, that was one of the arguments against switching to Go is like, you know, like we have all of these things, right? Like all of these things, you know, Perl developers expect, our systems expect. Um, and to be fair, like that is a really good argument for not rewriting everything in Go. Um, is you know you lose all of that, all all of those little bits of things that people are accustomed to. Um, but you know, I start I started small uh, by doing that and finding you know small services. And it and indeed it turned out that at a certain level of requests, the Perl one was not holding up, and I was able to say, hey, 
look what I have just sitting here. Um, and uh, we did the you know side by side tests and we deployed it. And I was like, great, like that's great. Like now now we have our first one in production. That's wild, man. That's amazing. That's awesome. That's a great story. I mean, tremendous amount of effort and work and uh, unknowns there. But at the end of the day, were they happy when that started solving the problem? Mm, uh, I mean, it's it's one of, it's one of those like, are they happy? It's like, well, they're happy I've solved the problem. They're annoyed that I did it in Go, right? But the alternative is, well, like like the Perl web serving stack that we're having, like that we have just is not able to serve requests fast enough. So we could just have like a ton more servers or we could replace like all of these servers with like two Go servers, like one primary, one backup, um, you know? Uh, and and so at some point they're like, okay, like <laughs> it's like, like you win, it, it was a begrudging win, um, you know? And uh, I think the the, the service that I built that I think really uh, changed minds a little bit more was uh, not actually a piece of infrastructure that was written in Perl that Booking was responsible for. Um, it was the re-implementation of Graphite uh, that I did. Um, and probably my last three years, uh, last three, th three and a half, two years, whatever, um, in that range at Booking, I was working on re-implementing all of Graphite in Go um, because we had an enormous Graphite stack um, and the Python implementation uh, was falling over. And there was a, we had an idea for a hackathon. Uh, we were gonna try and basically write a proxy, a reverse proxy that could you know, fan out requests to a bunch of different Graphite servers. Um, and you know, sort of end of the day hackathon, we had a proof of concept written in Python um but it couldn't actually handle the load and i you know i went home friday and uh, implemented uh, a bunch of patches to a uh, pickle library which is the python serialization format so i fixed up a serialization format library and wrote basically re-implemented this proxy sort of over the weekend and came in monday and said like look what i have um you know and uh, and we deploy them like this is like this is exactly what we need um, and then from there, just continuing to add uh, more and more features to this replacement graphite stack. And Booking is still using uh, that stack. Um, and, I th and, I, and I think there, just like the, the benefits was so obvious that they couldn't say no. Um, and uh, yeah, I, and so a lot, a lot of my work again on interesting algorithmic problems were like, yes, e even the mundane problems are hard at scale and we definitely had scale. Um, for our graphite cluster, and so a, a lot of my work and research was like, how do I how do I fix this problem um, that I'm having? So, what happens in sixteen that you decide now you are? Uh, that's change... 2017. 2017. Sorry, seventeen. Seventeen. I think I wanted to move on. Uh, you know, I I mean, I, I I loved being in Amsterdam. I really like working at Booking. Um, you know, I felt. You know, it's like the graphite stuff, it was kind of secondary, right? It was not, you know, they, they, it was something that they needed, it was, but they would have been happier if it was not something they needed, you know? Um, and so I just, I felt that uh, the engineering culture was not changing in directions that I felt it ought to be changing. 
um, I felt that, you know, my position as a Go developer, I was kind of stalled because I was not working on like something important, like from the hotel booking side of things. I was looking on this like annoying piece of infrastructure that was written in Go that they kind of had to have me around for. Um, and so I was like, I, I think it is time for me to move on uh, and move to a company where Go, where they're like, yay, Go, that is what we want, as opposed to, well, I guess if you have to write this thing in Go, I guess we'll let you, you know. Um, so, uh, and so I landed it fastly. You could have went anywhere in 2017. You had enough of a, of a presence in the Go community and the quality of the work that you were doing. I think you even gave that keynote by 17, right? At Go for Khan UK. I mean, you could have went anywhere. So I'm kind of curious a couple of things. Did you, I, I imagine you did your search a little bit underground and Maybe kind of share why, and you're still at Fastly today, right? I'm, so, still, I'm still at Fastly you, today. Yeah, right. I mean, you find a place that you're happy with, you don't, you don't change. So I'm kind of curious why Fastly, when you could have worked literally anywhere you wanted at that time, from, from a go shop perspective. Um, you know, I mean, I think they had, um, they had interesting problems. You know, I mean, I think much like, uh, you know, booking, they had the at scale, even the mundane problems are hard. And obviously they have, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of hard problems that need to be solved <laughs> uh, at scale. Um, you know, I really liked the people that I interviewed with and I liked the engineering culture uh, that I was, uh, I guess, you know, lear learning about. Um, and, and I knew a bunch of people uh, that were there and they all seemed like nice people who were who were who were still happy to be at Fastly and uh, and I think also you know I was able to be remote um, which was which was something else uh, that was important because I really didn't feel like moving uh, back to the United States at that point or, or rather moving to the United States and so I think they just uh, Fastly was a uh, was it was it was a reasonable place you know it, it good engineering culture hard problems um, you know definitely. Uh, a lot of work in Go, but a lot of work, uh, obviously, in C, um, you know, for everything that they were doing and just a, a lot of interesting problems. There you go. And so I said, sure. <laughs> but, but I think the remote is a good point because there wasn't a, that was still really new back in 17. It was really Not new. a lot of companies yeah, were yeah. doing remote. And that was a novelty for sure, at least back then. You moved the family closer to the family. That's awesome. You you start this job. You get to work on Go full time. You're working on really, in, in, I guess, in an essence, from what we can talk about, again, large scaling issues with requests and handling that that stuff. Well, I mean, so uh, I mean, I mean, I can talk about what I what I what I was working on for the first four yeah, years. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, basically, scaling out our TLS infrastructure. Um, right, so you can imagine if you're a CDN and all of your customers have a TLS certificate, then when they come to you, you have to present a TLS certificate um, for that HTTPS website. Um, and if you have, you know, one customer, then you have one certificate, and that's not really a problem. But Fastly has slightly more than one customer, therefore we have slightly more than one certificate, and all of a sudden it becomes <laughs> a mundane problem that is very difficult at scale. Um, and so uh, I worked on the distributed system that kept all of that up to date. Um, and uh, that's a hard problem. And there were a lot of really interesting optimization opportunities 
that were there that presented themselves both from a uh, sort of, you know, like micro optimization level, um, but also from a distributed system sort of like optimization uh, level in terms of, you know, minimizing, uh, you know, communication back and forth with all the different things and minimizing storage on disk and, uh, you know, minimizing, uh, you know, stuff in memory and, and, and all of that. Um, and so I did that for four years. I imagine, I imagine cert management is a nightmare too at some point. It's not just one. Is it just one certificate? You got to manage one for every customer at that point too, right? Like there's no let's encrypt at this point. There's no APIs for that at this point, right? Uh, I am, I'm, I'm going to defer these questions. Okay, um, that's fair. It'll just be easier if I don't talk about this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> no, I don't want to talk. Anything you can't talk about, you just say no, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, I am curious though, when the new problems that you're working on now came up, were you excited to jump into TinyGo and Wasm? Was that so? Uh, basically, obviously, we have this Computed Edge uh, product. Um, uh, an internal team was starting to write a proof of concept. You know, like what would it look like to sort of you know deploy a service uh, in Go? What do we need in order to allow that? Um, and they were running into reliability issues. Uh, and bugs in, it's like, are these bugs in TinyGo? Are these bugs in our, uh, computer edge? Are these, you know, like wh where are these things really lying? And, um, I was known as somebody who was good at Go and the opportunity came up and I would say like, yes, like I will, I will switch over and spend some of my time helping this team, uh, figure out what is going on with their Go proof of concept. Um, and that was, I guess, September of last year. So that's not, now been a year. Um, and just working on improving TinyGo stability uh, and fixing uh, the bugs uh, that were there, the bugs in the compiler, the bugs in the runtime, um, and then also working on uh, like our uh, working on the SDKs that our customers will then use to write and deploy uh, TinyGo apps uh, on uh, on our computer edge. So I've been hearing the word WASM for, let's just say, eight years. And I've heard all the promises. And I feel like it comes up and it goes away and it comes up and it goes away. And maybe I don't work on the tech that can use it. But I just would love five minutes of your thoughts on WASM. And is this going to stay? Where is it going to use? Will it be more widespread? Like, Are you... Are you positive on it? Are you negative on it? Maybe just some thoughts around this WASM in general. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, it is the next, uh, you know, like isolated virtual machine, right? I mean, when we think about, uh, you know, like virtual machines, people are like, ah, oh, you know, like Flash, you know, you have all these problems, you know, you have these things and you just compile them to, you know, like Flash and then you can run it in the browser. Um, but Flash obviously had, had lots of issues. Um, you know, people say, well, you know, like like the JVM, all of a sudden, you know, like you write once, you run it everywhere, um, you know, because it's the JVM. Um, and, uh, you know, it turned out that, you know, when you only have one implementation, uh, you know, of a thing um, that is really closely tied uh, to its source language, which in this case was Java, like the, the JVM is not actually a general purpose machine. It is very specifically a Java virtual machine, right? There are instructions in there that are very closely tied to the language that it is expecting uh, to be interpreting. Um, and so it's difficult to like compile an arbitrary program down into uh, JVM. 
you know, WebAssembly, I think, solves that issue. It is, you know, a more general purpose computer, um, but was also, or I guess instruction set, but was also, you know, designed with a specification, with a reference implementation, um, with, you know, like known semantics for all of these things, um, you know, as a target that can be, um, I guess, like validated and saying, okay, we're not going to have, um, you know, like if, if we validate these things, then we know that we don't have any of these things that are likely to lead to security vulnerabilities, um, right? Like just from, from the WASM side, like we can sort of, you know, validate the, that the code is, uh, you know, like not terrible. Um, and so I think in terms of, uh, you know, sandboxing, um, you know, WASM, WASM is great. You know, it's sort of, you know, you, know you, you can take something, you can build it down to WASM and you can run it in, an, in like in a secure sandbox that you can like, like both like trust and not trust, right? You can trust, you can trust it in the sense that nothing is going to leak out of that sandbox. You you don't have to trust the code that's running inside it because you trust the sandbox, right? Um, so I think being able to take, you know, like arbitrary code uh, and run it in that sense is great. And, you know, that's obviously what is happening with a lot of these uh, edge computing, uh, you know, products or, um, you, know, I, you know, people are running WASM not only in the browser, but, uh, you know, they're taking other people's bits of code and logic and running them somewhere, um, right? Like there are blockchain companies that have WASMs for, you know, like smart contracty things, right? It's like, well, you know, and, and you know, and so, so there are sort of like restrictions in that way. And so it is not, I don't have to come up with my own uh, instruction set. I can use this instruction set and there are really, you know, well, uh, you know, well-written, fast, uh, secure reference implementations or, you know, that we can then plug into our blockchain infrastructure, you know, to run smart contracts um, without having to write, come up with our own scripting language. Um, all right. So I, I think, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't see Wasm going away anytime soon. Um, I think there are a lot of people using it for interesting things just for that level of uh, sandboxiness and security. Is the Wasm VM built into your program so you just have to run the program and it launches the vm and executes it or do these machines have a wasm vm that is kind of started in the background and you attach how does that work yeah i mean you can you can think of it kind of like the like the jvm loading uh like a uh, like dot class file right so the tiny go produces like a WASM binary, which is to say it produces a series of uh, WebAssembly bytecode operations. Um, and then that is, and then that dot WASM file is loaded into your WebAssembly interpreter. Um, and in Fastly's case, that interpreter is WASM time, um, but there are a bunch of others, um, but we really like WASM time, um, so. <laughs> okay, I, I see that. Okay, yeah, I, I'm, that, that... I'm still, I want to see it being used more. I just, the, the idea of it running in the browser kind of seemed with all this promise, but I don't see it being used very much in the browser. Uh, I guess I'm seeing it more on these tiny devices right now than I am kind of anywhere else. So maybe that's where it ends up really living at the end of the day. I don't know. I don't know. What, what do you see the future as? You think this is going to become more and more this is going to be the general purpose machine at the end of the day. We're all going to just be running WASM programs. Eh, you know, I, I think, I think until the next one uh, comes along, you know, I mean, I think um, having, 
you know, WebAssembly as a compilation target, um, you know, means that you are really no longer limited to sort of like, uh, like JavaScript um, because you can now compile things very efficiently down to WebAssembly and you have very fast interpreters for WebAssembly. Um, and so you can kind of start, you know, and so you're, you're not tied into that J JavaScript kind of ecosystem. Um, and I think, and, and so I think, you know, people are certainly building large scale web applications uh, and, and, not, and not having to use JavaScript. Um, and, you know, they can build something else and, and the, the WebAssembly interpreter in, in the compiler, or sorry, in your, in your browser is, is fast. Um, and I think for all of the, you know, uh, like edge computing, you know, running untrusted code uh, stuff that has a little bit of logic, all of a sudden it doesn't have to be, you know, like a custom uh, scripting language with your custom interpreter. You can say, just give us any kind of WebAssembly in whatever language you want, and we will run it safely and securely on our systems. And and you get you get to choose your language, and we don't care what you write it in because we trust our WebAssembly sandbox. And what I love now too is you're you're technically working on open source now, right? I mean, you're working. I am now technically working on open source. Tiny yeah. Go. So I think that's really brilliant for that tech in the community. And maybe in another year or two, we'll get to get you back on stage to talk about some of the uh, cool stuff you're doing with Tiny Go and Wasm, dropping a seed. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, like I've had, I've had so much fun working on the tiny goes stuff. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's one of those things like, I don't want to say it's been like an endless source of bugs. It's been an endless source of like interesting things to hunt down. Um, you know, I think it was originally started basically for like blinking LEDs on an Arduino, um, you know, and because it used the LLVM backend, we sort of got this, the, the web assembly backend for free. Um, and you know, but all of a sudden, you know, like you, 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 you end up finding a large source of bugs when you take a piece of software and start using it in a slightly different way. Um, and I think that the slightly different way that TinyGo has all of a sudden been being used is I now no longer want to write, you know, like a 20 line program that reads from this uh, IO pin and, you know, blinks this LED or sends, you know, or runs this motor kind of thing, but like, you know, large applications that are trying to use like the full Go standard library and, you know, arbitrary imports. And so like, it's not surprising that this uh, compiler that sort of had, you know, this one initial goal, when you try and move it into this much larger goal is going to encounter issues. Um, and so that has been a lot of my work, just like, you know, taking arbitrary programs and running them and finding the bugs and then fixing those bugs. Um, and that's just, that's just, that's just been a lot of fun. Um, you know, get to fix garbage collector issues. And <laughs> I mean, I'm not a compiler person by any means, but basically you have to, your job ends at what the object code, and then that's passed over to LLVM to finish the remaining work. Is that like kind of where your bugs uh, yeah, I mean, we've certainly discovered issues in LLVM uh, as well uh, that we have had to work around. Um, and we've discovered bugs in how we interact with LLVM. And so it's like LLVM is doing exactly what we told it to do. We just told it to do the wrong thing. Um, uh, but I mean, I think for the most part, uh, that stuff has all been ironed out and was ironed out. Uh, fairly quickly. Now it's really stuff around um, the runtime and reflection support and a couple of other optimization things that would be that would be nice to have. Um, but 
uh, yeah, I think tiny ghostability is, has come a long way uh, in the past year, 18 months. Uh, and, and I'm still enjoying working on it. Like, I, like I've been reading, see, so this is the thing, right? Like, um, I'm thinking about it, like, how can I improve the garbage collector in TinyGo? And so I've been reading papers about like uh, garbage collection strategies for embedded devices, right? Well, that's kind of like an interesting thing, you know, to read about. Um, that's awesome to work on that kind of stuff is right. I think it's right up your alley and you're the right person to be, to be working on that stuff. That's awesome. Not, yeah, that's exciting. All right. Well, unfortunately we are out of time and I had no idea you were working on that stuff before we started talking. So one, I'm going to yell at Ron Evans, if you're listening, Ron, for not telling me how involved you were. <laughs> but I think, I think it's really good for, for everyone that you are. So man, kudos, man. That's, that's cool stuff. Well, thank you if, very much. If anybody wanted to reach out to you after listening to the show, what's the best way uh, somebody can just kind of ping you? Uh, probably the Twitters, Damien Grisky. And uh, due to the pandemic, I haven't had, a, haven't had my hair cut, so I actually look much more like my avatar uh, than I have in a while. The glasses that go to you, the ponytail. Nice. All right, we'll make sure we get that in the show notes. So uh, thank you again for uh, spending all this time and sharing everything that you could. So this is the Arn Labs podcast with myself, Bill Kennedy, and Damien Grisky signing off and uh, hoping to see everybody again real soon.